Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode two, where we're traveling back to 1944, and we're going to look at the second winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Howard Hansen, for his Symphony Number no. Four. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to start with you because I have a lot. More experience. I have a lot to say about Howard Hansen. Uh, but what, what's your take on Hansen, or what, what is your experience with his music, or knowing much about him? So I have little experience with <laughs> Hansen compared to you. Now the the bulk of this experience I have is my theory teacher as an undergraduate, W. Francis Macbeth, a famous uh, composer for wind band. He actually studied with Hansen. Mm. That was when he went to do his doctorate. He went to Eastman to study with Hansen. And so there's a lot of kind of fingerprints of Hansen in his music. So when I took American music with uh, Dr. Macbeth, that was my introduction to Howard Hansen. So oh. I began to hear, because I would, you know, in our band, we would listen to some of Dr. Macbeth's music and we'd premiere it and these types of things. And so I started to hear some of the symphonies and some of those kind of fingerprints. But after that, there was nothing. Went to graduate school. We didn't talk about Howard Hansen. No. It just, he just kind of fell off my radar. Basically, until we started looking at this, I hadn't <laughs> returned to Hansen. Huh. Well, that's, that's, I'm going to bring up a question related to that in the symphony in context a little bit later. But, uh, well, I'll ask it now. Uh, so people like Hansen, uh, why why are they not performed? I mean, I guess we can get to this a little bit later, but why, you know, he was extremely popular. He and was. He was also a famous conductor, conducting the Eastman Rochester Philharmonic and uh, leading one of the leading, or being the director of one of the most yeah. important music schools. So people, there's a, this whole generation of mid 19. Most of these people we're going to be talking about the next, yeah, the next, <laughs> next 10 episodes. episodes. Yeah, who've just been forgotten in the sands of time. And I, I hope that when we, after we discuss this and look at it a little bit more, we can kind of maybe think about why they've Absolutely. been left. No, it's a great yeah. question. It is a great question. I think we can ask for almost all of these individuals we're going to be talking about over the next roughly 10 episodes. When we get through the 1940s and the 50s, right. that generation that they all knew each other, they supported each other, they won all these awards, um, they performed each other's music. But as we move into the 1980s and 90s, they just kind of disappear. As this generation starts dying off, yeah, that's they kind of true. disappear. All right, so now you have to tell your Hansen okay, stories. Okay, I've got a lot of Howard Hansen stories. So I first knew him because, knew didn't know him, but knew of him. Uh, playing in my the New Trier High School Orchestra. You played him in high school? Yes, our high school orchestra, New Trier in Winnetka, Illinois, played the Second Symphony, which is probably his most famous that's, piece. That's the one I know. Yeah, and uh, I just loved it. It, it. I'm a horn player, so oh, okay. uh, he writes really well for horn, very lush, romantic lines, uh, and so it was really fun to hear, and it was exotic because it was an American composer right. at that time, high school kid, you're playing excerpts of Beethoven, Brahms, the usuals, and then all of a sudden, Howard Hansen. Huh? So that's where I first came across him. And then I did my master's degree at Eastman. So that's where I really got to know Hansen's music and Hansen's history there. Uh, every day you'd walk into the lobby of the Eastman School and they have a big painting of him. And so I would always say hello to <laughs> Director Hansen as I walked in. Uh, because he was very prominently displayed. It's like Jeremy the... Bentham, they wheel him out yes. in the faculty meetings and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> have a good time with Howard Hansen. Yes, he's brought in, and yeah, there he is. He's always there. He's a big legend. He was director mm -hmm. of Eastman for 40 years. And that's a huge amount of time. 
Uh, and then I worked in the special collections in the library and got to look at a lot of documents and reading about him. Uh, and then kind of forgot about him until a few years ago, actually last year, uh, my partner and I went to a Czech uh, festival in Prague, Nebraska. That's wrong on a lot of levels, uh, Prague, Prague, uh, but it's Prague, Nebraska. And I noticed as we were driving there, the town of Wahoo, Nebraska is on the way or very close. And then immediately I thought, well, what famous com American composer is from Wahoo, Nebraska? You're the only person I know who would see Wahoo and think, what famous composer came to Wahoo? And sure enough, it's Howard Hansen. And Howard Hansen's house is there. Oh, that's and amazing. They kept it. Yes, yes. And so we took a tour. Uh, we said we were Eastman graduates. And the ladies there were so friendly and so excited that Eastman graduates or that maybe people came and saw the house. <laughs> And so we went in, and I got to play his piano, oh, wow. uh, and got to tour the whole house, and they gave me all sorts of literature, and it was very fun. So uh, it's interesting, even in a small town, they were very proud of him, of course, um, because yeah. he was a you know he's their famous person. They also have there's actually other famous people from Wahoo. There's a baseball player and. I forget something else, someone else, but that's not what you thought of driving down the road. No, I thought <laughs> Howard Hansen immediately. So, so he's always been a presence in my life, I guess, and uh, from high school all the way to now. And so it was really interesting to explore this piece because I didn't know it at all. I knew he wrote uh, how many seven symphony, eight symphonies, quite a few uh, symphonies. I didn't know any past the second because that's all <laughs> I played. Um, but I think this was going to be an interesting one to talk about in comparing it to the second and uh, you've got some clips and things that I think will be really interesting. Yeah, dig as into well. his kind of cultural impact. Well, let's, yeah. let's go there right now. Telling the story. So I thought it'd be useful to start with who Howard Hansen is. You obviously know, but for <laughs> people like me who have this rough idea of who Hansen is, because he, he does keep popping up the more you look at uh, the history of American music, and partially because he was one of these uh, amazing child prodigies coming from Wahoo, Nebraska. Yeah, of all places. <laughs> um, but he got his first job when he's 19 years old at the uh, University of College of the Pacific at the time, University of Pacific. Um, and by the time he's, what would you figure out, 23, he's mm -hmm. dean of the college, um, the Conservatory of Fine Arts there, which is just insane wow. to be 23 years old and yeah. be leading a, an institution like that. So after serving there for a few years, he wins the Prix de Rome, he gets to go to Europe to study, and that's when he begins to begin talks with the Eastman School of Music, which is brand new at the time, mm -hmm. to come and be director. So here he is in 1924. He's 28 years old. He's director of the Eastman School of Music. Wow. <laughs> it's insane. Well, this sort of thing, ha I mean, we hear stories. We, have, in fact, have colleagues who uh, just went right into major orchestras at the right. age of 19, 20, 21. That, that doesn't really happen much that anymore like that. You it could, really doesn't. You could certainly not do this because you, the expectations are doctorates and you would have a lot more education experience, but pretty amazing. I mean, there was kind of an open field back then. Yeah. yeah. But also, because he started so young, you said 40 years, 40 years that he was at the Eastman School. till 64. And if you think about that length of time, you can see that he had a huge impact on the way that we teach mm -hmm. in the United States, 
music at the university level. He basically kind of moved us from the conservatory model to the university model that we have now that we have here at UMKC that pretty much any university in the United States is using a model based on what Howard Hansen put together. And in fact, he's the one who came up with, or at least shepherded through the first Doctor of Musical Arts degree. Right. That was to legitimize performance or teaching performance, uh, teaching performers. So that, again, I think Eastman was the first, or one of the first schools to offer a DMA. So you see his fingerprints just everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in our profession, what we do. Um, he also was important in promoting composers and American composition. Mm -hmm. So that's the one thing I didn't mention whenever I was saying my experience with Howard Hansen is that um, my book on Harry Parch, when I was researching that book, I went to the Sibley Music Library at Eastman mm -hmm. and got a recording of uh, a concert that Harry Parch gave there. And Harry Parch, a microtonal composer, about as far aesthetically <laughs> as you can get from Howard Hansen. But you can hear in the background that Parch is giving this lecture demonstration, you can hear Howard Hansen's voice coming from the back of the hall going, they have to hear the hobo concerto. <laughs> <laughs> Which was just amazing to wow, me. That you wouldn't think that. You wouldn't think that someone who was writing symphonic works very much in the European tradition would be as supportive, but he was. He was supportive of mm -hmm. new and interesting things that were going on in American music. Um, he established you know, festivals of American music at Eastman. He was very supportive of younger composers. And so not only in the education, but just in the promotion of, of composition. And this yeah. is... Uh, you know, this is, I think, one of his big legacies beyond his composition was just the promotion of this style of composition in America. Yeah. And he also, he wrote a book called Harmonic Materials of Modern Music that I took a, when I was taking a class at Eastman, uh, the professor mentioned this book. It was on atonal theory. And uh, he said that Hansen wrote the book as a kind of manifesto against atonal theory to show mm. how ridiculous it was. But it actually turned out to be really influential for what we call set theory now. Uh, by Alan Fort and in the mm -hmm. 1970s, uh, that it was extremely influential. So, kind of funny how that turned out. Uh, actually, <laughs> a manifesto went against, a, yeah, went against his a key uh, piece of philosophy. Yeah, yeah that's wonderful. So, there's also one funny, well, that's not funny, but one story about Hansen at Eastman is that uh, Bartok, and I remember this very vividly hearing the story or reading about it, that Bartok wanted to teach at Eastman and was really interested in going, but Hansen did not want to hire him. Uh, because the the person suspected it was because it would have been big competition. Oh, of course. And Hansen wouldn't be the top dog anymore if you've got Bella Bartok on your faculty. So mm. unfortunately, Bartok did not teach at Eastman and then promptly died shortly thereafter. So Yeah, well, the ego is always there. Yeah, yeah. To those positions. But. Exactly. Huh. Well, the background of the piece itself, uh, this is the Fourth Symphony, um, which he composed in 1943, and it's subtitled Requiem, and it was in memory of his father. And if you look at each of the pieces, uh, the movements of the piece, then he actually goes through and tells you that it gives the tempo marking, but then it also gives the, the part of the Requiem that he's um, aping there. So the first movement is a Kyrie. So that he has these kinds of uh, connections, mm -hmm. which is also kind of interesting. So I think it's time for us to uh, to begin to look and see, you know, what's going on, uh, why this piece would have won the, the Pulitzer, and what's about this piece in terms of the composition. Behind the Notes so, yeah, so you mentioned that there are four movements, uh, Andante in Quieto, quieto uh, Elegy, Largo, 
and that's the Requesiat. My Latin isn't so good. I never took Latin. Uh, Presto, the Dies Irae. We know that one. And then the fourth movement is Largo Pastoral Lux Eterna. And I'm curious what you think about instrumental pieces that are modeled after vocal pieces, or in this case, parts of the mass, which were vocal, obviously. So what do you think? Is that an effective strategy, do you think, to write? I think it makes sense in terms of giving you a structure. Um, and we can talk about this in terms of the melodic lines in this piece, is that they tend to be stepwise because, mm. you know, you're modeling it after Gregorian chant, which right. is typically not having great leaps. And that's what instruments do really well, is to have interesting... You know, if they can leap all over the place where it's more difficult sometimes for the voice. And so I think that ends up kind of constraining mm. what you're going to end up writing uh, melodically. You're not going to get soaring, beautiful melodic lines uh, because you're basing it off of very stepwise pieces of chant that don't have a big range. Yeah, yeah. So it seems effective. And it's also not only, yeah, with the, you have the, I think both sides, you've got the musical side of it as well mm -hmm. as the inspiration of well, it. Well, I think that's really where you get the, yeah, yeah, that's really where you get the kind of the, the expressional part mm -hmm. of this piece, what what gives it anything that makes you want to come back to it and listen to it again is that it's it's very emotional. Yeah, yeah. And very cyclical. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, if you had to describe Hansen's style in this piece and in, in the second symphony, all the ones I know certainly uh, very ultra romantic mm -hmm. and very lyrical, like you're saying, uh, very tonal, but there's a little bit of bite to it. There's so, a little bit of bite. Yeah, you'll have... have these lush lyrical lines, but then he'll just mm, kind of zap you with a minor second or some kind of dissonant interval for tension purposes. Mm -hmm. So I find listening to some of the music that it, it gets a little static. Uh, like it's it sort does. Of, it's, and just kind of doesn't really, I don't know, there's a lot of ostinatos and kind of doesn't seem to go anywhere. But then you'll have these big sections of counterpoint and really develop. So... It's a strange mixture of things. Well, it does. And this is, uh, I'd like to pull up a clip at this point because one of the things that's interesting to me about this piece is that there is a, an amount of sameness to it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what we can play you is a, a clip from the first movement and a clip from the second movement. And I'm going to tell you which one is which <laughs> and kind of see what you think uh, in terms of the difference between these movements if there's a lot of contrast like we would expect in a symphonic piece. Which is movement one and which is movement two? Uh, well, one's Andante, one's Largo. I I don't know. Is the second movement uh, the second excerpt or was it in order? Or It not? actually was in order. Oh, okay. But the second movement, the second excerpt you heard sounds like it moves a little bit more, which would make me tend to think that it was the Andante right. and not the Largo, right. which I think is, yeah. But yeah. but that stepwise kind of uh, motion in terms mm -hmm. of the strings, the the melodic line isn't moving very far. It's a very narrow range. That's what I was talking about earlier. This kind of emphasis, yeah. what he's drawing in from Gregorian chant. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then in, in terms of the harmonic materials, I mentioned very tonal, uh, but a lot of modal stuff too. You've got a lot of these meandering. Like I, I could see a lot of it just being white note scales, just kind of up right. and down the white notes on the piano. 
uh, and a lot of A minor esque Dorian stuff uh, going on. So that 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 strikes me as a certain sound from that period in the forties, fifties in American music. That modal Roy Harris, that oh, yeah, period, those kind of composers. Well, they also have this. Uh, Use of the winds, yeah, and the kind of open sounds of the winds. Yes. The not as much reliance on the strings, and I think that's what you hear. I mean, the strings are a, a foundation, but Henson really the the interest I think of a lot of these movements is what's going on in the winds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's something that uh, it's a little bit different than a lot of European mm-hmm. inspiration, where the strings carry everything. Right, but here they're they're really doing a lot of the background, the churning away, and ostinatos and kind of grinding. So uh, it's. Yeah, it's a different, a good orchestration, I think. I mean, yeah, it's he, a beautiful orchestration. Yeah, he did very well. Uh, there is, a, as I said, the cyclical too. So mm-hmm. the themes that we heard at the beginning do come back in the fourth movement. They do. And is it is that kind of a climactic point, isn't it? It kind of brings back in a loud way. I think. Yeah, and it's actually I think the ending is really interesting. Oh yeah, strange. Um, because you do get this kind of climax where the themes come back and everything is pulled together and you kind of see the structure laid out. And then he keeps going. Yeah, yeah. And you get this really interesting... Um, I mean, you would expect from a Requiem to kind of have a mournful ending, but instead you almost have like this kind of hopeful, expansive mm-hmm. ending. So I thought we could listen a little bit to that. surprising ending there it, i thought it was over it faded out and then, ooh, and then it kind of comes back with this chord orchestrated yeah. unstable kind of chord and that's the end yeah it that's doesn't it. resolve hmm so thinking of requiems yeah. famous requiems mm-hmm. uh i don't know is, we, is there anything usually it's a hopeful thing and it's the in this case it's supposed to be a lux eterna so that mm-hmm. usually like four a's ends very beautifully and peacefully yeah. and but this one's a little... Yeah, you, and you have that beautiful, peaceful, yeah. which he gives to you, and then he stops for a moment, and then he brings in this first inversion chord, and you're like, yeah. where are you going? Mm. And you expect much more, and it just yeah, kind of fades out there. Hmm. What do you think he meant by that? What was the, I don't know, just the questioning of... I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think the... Of life and meaning of it the meaning of life and and what happens to us after we die but you know there's kind of two ways that you can go with a requiem that composers have gone Uh, one can be written for the living one can be written for the dead Mm -hmm. and i think he was writing for the living yeah and so god life goes on exactly yeah instead of just peaceful we're all gonna die now so (laughs) (laughs) that's a hopeful way to look at life (laughs) enjoy life you're gonna die yeah basically (laughs) no i think that's not what he was saying in this in this piece Mm -hmm. um so Thinking about why this might have won, or what in the musical aspects of it may have won, I now consult the jury report. And if you remember, in our last episode, we had our good friend Chalmers Clifton. Yes, wrote the letter, and this time the committee was 
Chalmers Clifton, Philip James, I don't know who oh, that name. was, and then Otto Luning, who was a, I think he didn't write electronic music or something. Or he, he did, was... a very famous uh, teacher also. Uh, mm. He was one of John Corleano's teachers. And okay, okay. Wrote opera as a... Yeah, very, that's right. He's another one of those names that was very popular in the 1940s and 50s and has since kind of faded away. Promptly forgotten. Yeah. So uh, this is to our another good friend, Dr. Frank Fackenthal. Which is a wonderful name. Yes. Uh, and so the advisory committee for Pulitzer recommends that the award for 1943-44 be made to Howard Hansen for his Symphony No. 4. The decision was unanimous and arrived at after a careful consideration of compositions. And then it said... Uh, Mr. Hansen's Symphony No. 4 was completed late in 43 and had its first performance in 1943, December, with the composer conducting. The radio premiere was 1944 with Stokowski and the Philadelphia Orchestra. Uh, so the we have a perform first performance of the work. We've got the program, and I want to get your reaction to okay. what this program is here. It's the Boston Symphony, and uh, conducted by the clearly forgotten... Wheeler Beckett no. at the podium. I do not know Wheeler Beckett. No, uh, but this was a youth concert, which I find this program amazing for a youth concert. Yeah. Uh, but the first half of the concert was Mahler, Das Lied von der Erde, mm. and then the second half was Hansen, Fourth Symphony. Okay, so this is fascinating because both of those end very similarly. Yes. If you think about Das Lied von der Erde, it's like this... Uh, major chord add six kind of yeah. fading out with uh, the text avic or forever right. yeah so uh, mm -hmm. that's interesting they both have the same kind of ending oh, i wonder yeah. if there was in inspiration for hansen whenever he was writing the fourth symphony hmm. if he knew this was going to be the first half of the concert because that's but they both deal with life and death and right. cycles mm -hmm. and um, the meaning of life and all these kinds of things so i can see that's actually a, i think an interesting pairing yeah i think it would work pretty well i just wonder how uh eight-year-olds would sit through... Uh... That is one of the questions, <laughs> especially since the first two movements of this uh, symphony are not exactly uh, fiery. <laughs> no, no. Or sitting through 26 minutes of uh, the, the last movement of Das Lied von der Erde could be a, a bit of a... It could be a bit of a stretch, stretch too. Yep. <laughs> but, it, but it makes sense, though, for a programming purpose that, that would uh, those two pieces would be together. And Hansen was very proud of this piece. I think he, he in was. numerous places he said it was his best piece. Mm -hmm. And was very proud of it. So, uh, so why do you think it won? Well, what is it about this piece that made it? I and mean, this is only the second Pulitzer Prize yeah. they ever awarded, coming after someone like William Schumann. Mm -hmm. So, well, at first I would think, oh, we we talked about how the Schumann piece won probably because of wartime and the patriotic nature of it. This piece is not patriotic no. and has nothing to do with that. Um, maybe I don't know. I'm really reading into it here, but if we're in World War II in 1944-ish. It's turning towards the end of the war, and people are starting to, a lot of deaths, and kind of mournful, and it's a bad time uh, with what's going on in the world, and so maybe the this piece kind of was a salve or some kind of a, a peaceful contrast to what was going on in the world, and it was a, a allegory for requiem, death, and then we've got world war going on too, and fathers, mothers, people are coming home in boxes, so... Yeah. I don't know. Uh, well, I also wonder if it's, I mean, if you look at someone like Schumann and his place in the musical firmament at the time, Hansen is a similar character in terms of his influence and his importance, you know, removing from head of Juilliard to head of Eastman yeah. School. I mean, he wasn't head of Juilliard <laughs> at this point, but, yeah. but that kind of level of individual. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if partially this is, let's award the people who are 
important to the musical community yeah. even more than this is necessarily the most influential piece uh, of the year 1944. Yeah, that's, that's so it's more about the person than the actual piece itself, maybe? Yeah, I wonder if it, yeah. it, it might be. Um, because if you look at both the um, Schumann from our last episode and now this Howard Hansen, in neither case is it the piece that those people are known for. No, that's true. Hansen's known, right. yeah. known for the second. Hansen's known for the second. Schumann's known. I mean, New England Triptych is probably yeah. the piece that gets performed the most by Chester. And, or yeah. Ch- yeah, all those um, pieces. So it seems to me that mm. in, in some way, we're, and we'll see this as we go through the Pulitzers, I think, but this balance between what is the most important, and we talked about, you know, right, that word. <laughs> the most yeah, important. important. Um, piece that is created in a given year versus what is actually the best piece mm-hmm. or the most influential piece or the longest lasting piece, what pieces people are, piece are going to be people talking about for years. Yeah. Our next episode, that's, we'll get to that's a, one of those. Yeah. A, a work that people are still talking about. But I think yeah. at this point, um, it's not quite that, that level. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe something else was going on in terms of picking Hansen for his importance to the community. Yeah. Not saying this is not a, a, a beautiful piece. Um, I don't think it's to the level, actually, like the second better. I think there's a reason yeah, why too. the second is, yeah. <laughs> it has more of a punch. It has um, a little bit more of a uh, emotional, strangely, mm-hmm. it has a little bit more of an emotional ring to it. Yeah. Yeah. And so kind of wrapping up that whole idea of these this, these pieces and their time, how, why why do you think that nobody plays this music anymore? Like, why don't, why, how come we never hear Hanson uh, apart from a high school orchestra or <laughs> uh, 20 years ago or... Uh, you know, why wouldn't the Kansas City Symphony play something like this? Or what? what is there any reason why they wouldn't? I mean, they don't even play Ives, so why would they? I don't see know. why. I, I would think that an American com- American Symphony Orchestra should play something like this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's well composed. It's beautiful, um, accessible. It's accessible. It's not going to be putting off your audience in any way, um, and it allows you to explore the music of your nation. I yeah, think, I, I I think that we're in especially when we're talking about the symphony orchestra, um, we're talking about a, in the United States, sadly, they play more European music than they play American music. Um, and that kind of hold to, to tradition. We're beginning to see some changes. Yeah. And there are certain composers, uh, certain conductors who have championed this type of music, uh, this period of music over the past you know, 20, 30 years. Um, but it's the type of thing I can really, I would encourage conductors to look at yeah. the symphonies of Howard Hansen and, and begin to program them again. Yeah, they're certainly not technically as difficult as a lot of other yeah. pieces, and uh, I think it's, it gives an opportunity, like you say, to explore and expose more American music, uh, which should be, I think, a goal of, of orchestras in this country, yeah. which is not always the case. Well, let's talk a little bit about then the the reception of this piece, where yeah. it's gone, and, and where Howard Hansen's reputation has gone over the past, uh, say, 50 years. Hit or miss. Well, I think we've already alluded to the fact that Hansen's reputation or Hansen's uh, appearance in the common knowledge or common canon is pretty low right now apart from a very few pieces. There's one band piece, I should say, uh, Chorale and Alleluia. It's played very that's, regularly. That's a pretty frequent uh, piece played, but but generally not not much. And do, I don't know if it's just the, it's so romantic, and it's, I mean, we're, we hear music, now people still write tonal music now, which I find odd uh, that it's come back that way. But 
this just is just maybe does it seem like it's just out of its time or just I think it's, it is it's kind of it's just too much too over overwrought too Hollywood or I don't know well and it's interesting that you bring up Hollywood because of course Hanson has been a huge influence on a lot of composers that's probably where you're going to hear um, Hanson's style even more than anywhere else uh, I think maybe we can play just a little bit of an excerpt from this symphony from the fourth symphony and get an idea of what that might sound like why it might bring up ideas of Hollywood for you. <laughs> So that's from the second movement, the climax of the second movement. And, you know, it's one of those things that just like you can see the hero shot with the crane and the sunset and everything. Yes. It's, the, it's the John Williams, uh, which is, of course, uh, ironic because John Williams has explicitly <laughs> borrowed from uh, Howard Hansen, if you know, the second symphony uh, mm-hmm. when he went to write his score for E.T. So we can play a little bit of those two back to back so you can kind of mm. hear the connection here. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty blatant. It's it pretty really blatant. Is. Yeah. But so. I think a lot of the, you know, we talk about John Williams and Star Wars and Holst and yep. those Wagner and those kind of connections. But I think the impact of someone like Howard yeah. Hansen is really strong on his compositional language and his style. That's that's the era in which he grew up and he was hearing, you know, the comp- composition that was going on around him in the United States. This is what it was. Mm-hmm. So John, John Williams, Williams did his schooling at Juilliard. Did. So. He uh, did not not get the not go to the full Hanson treatment, but he didn't uh, walk past the portrait every no, day. No, he didn't walk past the portrait, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that's that's fascinating that there's that connection there. But I think that's the symphony, the second symphony, is the one that's yeah. the, the romantic symphony. That's the one that has lasted, and that's the one that uh, is still played today, if any of them are played. I mean, that was your mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. Um, when I went to find Hanson symphonies. That's the one that was the most recorded. It was easiest yep. to kind of get a hand on when I was in the throws my undergraduate <laughs> education yeah. in the 1990s. Um, but this piece has basically disappeared. Yeah. I mean, there were yeah. a couple of recordings. Hansen recorded it with the Rochester, with the Eastman um, Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, it was recorded, what, 10 years ago? Is that when? Yeah, so G- uh, Gerard Schwartz in Seattle Symphony, they've been really great about recording a lot of these forgotten composers. They recorded a lot of David Diamond, uh, Virgil Thompson, uh, all the all the Hanson symphonies, so bringing this music back by a, a good symphony orchestra. So I, I give them credit; they've been really proactive in playing this music. Uh, but not a lot of recordings. Uh, no, very very few recordings. More than yeah. we saw last time with the that's true the Schumann Free yeah. Song. There were <laughs> almost no recordings, and that had, wasn't recorded until recently. Yeah. Whereas this ha- has you know yeah. a steady number of recordings over the kind of past 60, 70 years of its life. But which helps because Hansen was a conductor and had an orchestra ready. Well, and that's what you find is yeah. that half the recordings are Hansen <laughs> recording right. it yeah. himself, exactly. so that he was able to kind of 
it, he felt it was a great piece and he wanted to record it, um, but it really hasn't lasted no. very much. No. So we're 0 for 2 so far here with the pieces that are still with us and still in the canon, but... But our next episode, That's, that will will break our streak. We'll strike our yeah. streak and begin to talk about uh, one of the most influential and important pieces that, that the Pulitzer ever awarded, uh, and that comes from Aaron Copeland. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Howard Hansen and his Fourth Symphony. And I'll also say that we have a nice portrait <laughs> that you can see of Dave <laughs> and Howard Hansen there at the Eastman School. Join us next episode when we'll be discussing Aaron Copeland's Appalachian Spring. Until then, keep listening. Mm-hmm.